let's give a warm welcome to Matt Hahn. And I love you, bro. Yeah, love you, bro. Yeah, Matt is is indeed one of my one of my closest friends. I, I consider him uh, one of my one of my mentors. A man who has shown me uh, how to live the Christian life. He's uh, he's one of the most humble men I know. A man who's willing to admit his flaws and point people to Christ. A man who's committed to his wife and his kids. And I just can't thank the Lord enough for his influence in my life. So it's it's a joy to be back. Thank you guys for having me. Not that you really had a choice in bringing me here, but. Thank you, elders, for the invitation. If you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it. We'll go ahead and dive right in. Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 17. This morning, I want to entitle this message, People Are the Mission. And before we jump into verse 17 and work our way through this section of Scripture, let me, let me catch you up to speed on what has transpired thus far in the story of Acts, because a lot has gone down in the, in the first 19 chapters of this book. In Acts chapter 1, you find Jesus Christ post-resurrection meeting with his disciples, and he's, he's giving them the mission. He looks at them in the face, and he says, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. After he articulated that mission to them and gave them some other instructions, he ascended to be with his Father in heaven. Shortly after that, after an angel came down and reminded the disciples to go to Jerusalem, the disciples make the long journey to the city of Jerusalem, and they gather in an upper room. There's approximately 120 of them there, and they don't bring in a public speaker to give them a pep talk. They rather hit their knees, and they beg God to be faithful to the promise that he gave them in sending the Holy Spirit. And just as Jesus promised, God the Holy Spirit came and indwelt the early church. Instantaneously, these 120-ish people begin speaking in tongues of different languages. Now, this wasn't unknown babbling, but rather them communicating the timeless, precious message of the gospel of Jesus Christ to all the different people from different lands who were in the city of Jerusalem celebrating the festival of Pentecost. And when the gospel was communicated in all those different languages, it really spread like wildfire. The church grew exponentially. People by the droves were repenting of their sin and placing their faith in Jesus Christ. And it's really interesting. As you study the book of Acts, you'll see God pursuing and saving the most unlikely of people. Take, for instance, Saul in Acts chapter 8. If you're familiar with the story, in verse 1, you see Saul standing over Stephen, giving approval to his death. There were a handful of angry Jewish men with stones in their hands just waiting for the green light to kill Stephen by way of stoning. And Saul was there saying, yep, green light, go for it. I hate this dude. He's against my agenda. A chapter later, the same Saul that was standing at the feet of Stephen is on his way to Damascus, the text says, breathing murderous threats against the church, the text says. So he's not on his way there to meet his accountability buddy. He's not on his way there to give people high fives for Jesus. He's not on his way there to encourage the brethren. He's on his way there to kill more and more Christians. Why? Because he hated them. But God pursued Saul in his sin. This reminds me of the epic verse in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8, that says, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For very scarcely one die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man one might dare to die. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, while we were still on our own Damascus road, Christ died for us. Now, historians have kind of debated for a while 
about that phrase, at the right time. What does that exactly mean? Is Paul referring to a specific time in human history? I don't think so. I think what he means there is this. The right time in the eyes of God to flex his muscles of grace, love, and compassion is in our sin and in our weakness. This is the picture that we get of the gospel as Saul is headed to Damascus. Now, when, when God saves Paul by his grace, Paul becomes a brand new person. And this is consistent with 2 Corinthians 5, 17 that says if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old bye-bye is gone. The new has come. And that, Paul just changed right from the inside out. He begins not killing Christians, but serving Christians and teaching Christians and discipling Christians and raising up leaders and planting churches. Now, as we enter into chapter 20, Paul has already completed about 20 to 25 years of missionary work. His three-year missionary journey has concluded, and he's on this island called Miletus. He's around 70 to 75 years old, and he has some final instructions for some Ephesian elders. So that's the context. Let's jump in now. Verse 17 of chapter 20. Luke records it this way. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. And just in case you're curious, Miletus was approximately 60 miles from the city of Ephesus. So evidently, Paul sent a letter asking them to drop what they were doing, whether it would be eating dinner or conversing with a friend and say, hey, I need to talk to you guys on this island. I've got some important final words for you. When they arrived, verse 18, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility. We'll get back to that term. And with tears, although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews. So the first thing Paul says when he is with these elders is, You guys know how I lived when I was among you. You've observed my life. You've seen um, how I'm convicted in the way I live. You've seen that I've served the Lord with great humility. To be honest, the Bible has so much to say about humility. For starters, in James chapter 4, verse 6, James says God opposes the proud, stiff arms the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. If you fast forward four verses in the book of James, in verse 10, James, the author, says, humble yourself before the Lord and he's going to lift you up. Philippians 2, verse 3, Paul says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider other people better than yourself. I think humility is the hallmark characteristic of an effective, fruit-bearing Christian. And Paul possessed this particular trait. Now, to be honest, I think many people have this misunderstanding when it comes to humility. So let's define it. Actually, let's let... A man much smarter than me define it. C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors, defines humility as this. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. So it's not degrading yourself. It's not thinking you're damaged goods and you're good for nothing. Humility, on the other hand, is thinking of yourself less. Suffice it to say, humility is rejecting the notion to live for yourself and choosing to live for Jesus by living for the joy of those around you. To be humble, you must stiff arm the popular idea of I'm going to get mine or I'm going to do me and instead get wrapped up in a genuine, passionate pursuit of doing whatever it takes to please Jesus by serving other people. In my opinion, and I don't think it's in my opinion, I think this is God's opinion, humility has a lot to do with serving people. I mean, it was Jesus Christ himself who said that he did not come to be served 
but to serve and give himself as a ransom for many, many people, that is. So when Paul says that he served the Lord with humility, I think what he is saying is that he poured out his life for the sake of other people. He prayed with people, he preached to people, he taught to people. He taught people, he cared for people, he rubbed shoulders with people, he rejoiced with people, he mourned with people. You see, people are the mission, and they always have been, and they always will be. Jesus Christ didn't ultimately come to set up denominations, and he didn't ultimately come to create an outlet for you to live a fun life, make a lot of money, and then retire on the beach one day and avoid people at all costs. No. He came and he died and he rose for people. Therefore, your life as a Christian, regardless of your age or vocation, should be wrapped up in people. Okay? People on the street, people in your neighborhood, people here in this church, people at your workplace, people here in North Carolina, people everywhere. People, 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 people. You're going to hear me use that term Often, So here's the deal. I'm just going to put it bluntly. Many of you, some of you, I should say, know who I am, and you know I'm a pretty black and white straight shooter. So let me just call a spade a spade. If you do not love people, and what I mean by that is if you're not committed to people, love is so much more than this goosebump type feeling that you get when you meet someone that, you know, is the one. Love is commitment. Love is sacrifice. Love is perseverance. Love is long-suffering. If you do not love people, you do not love Jesus. The reverse is also true. If you truly, truly love Jesus, you will truly love people. But Matt, I'm not a people person. You kind of need to be if you're a Christian. I mean, Jesus himself said, if you love me, you'll love one another. Now, before you throw your pen at me, in disgust. I'm not asking you if you're an introvert to become an extrovert. Don't change who you are. It's totally okay for you to remain an introvert, but it's totally not okay for you not to commit your life to people. People are the mission. You have been saved by the grace of God to serve and care for people, real, live, breathing people. I would go so far to say that saying you love Jesus but don't love people is akin to you coming up to me and saying, hey, Matt, I really love you, but I can't stand your wife. Jesus Christ and the church are one, and if you truly love Christ, you're going to love people. And Paul had this humility in his spirit that led him to give himself up for the sake of people. So Paul says here in the text very clearly that he served the Lord with all humility. We know what that means now. Secondly, he says that he served the Lord with tears and with trials. He actually details what these trials were in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 24 through 28. So let me read you this account. He says, five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have gone without food. I have been cold and naked. 
Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. It does not take a tenured, intelligent theologian to come to the conclusion that Paul lived a pretty uncomfortable life. He admits over and over again that he was constantly imprisoned, right, and constantly in danger. Notice that that term itself populates itself not once, not twice, not three times, but eight times alone here in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. But it's really interesting and profound to me that through it all, through all the danger, through all the uncomfortable feelings, through all the trials, through all the tears, through all the hatred that he experienced, Paul had this inner sense of contentment deep down in his soul. As a matter of fact, in Philippians chapter 4, in a prison cell, he tells the Philippian church, I have found the secret of contentment. Remember, he is not in a 5,000 square foot house sipping on a latte while eating a croissant. He's in a prison cell in chains and he's shouting to the church in Philippi, hey guys, I know I'm in prison, I know I'm bloody, I know I'm naked, I know I don't have any food, I know I'm thirsty, but guess what, I'm content. He goes on to say, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. You see, Paul the apostle came to the realization that true eternal contentment is not found in a particular protocol or a circumstance, but rather in an eternal person named Jesus Christ that can never be stripped away. Paul's testimony tells me so much, Northwest Community Church. His testimony tells me that you don't have to have a big house to be content. Let me backtrack and restate that. His testimony tells me that you don't have to have a house at all to be content. There's nothing wrong with living in a house, but from a theological fundamental level, you don't need a house to be content. Furthermore, his testimony tells me that you don't need a lot of money in your bank account to be content. Let me backtrack and restate that. His testimony tells me you don't have to have any money in your bank account to be content. You can have $0.00 in your Bank of America, Wachovia, or Chase account and truly be content in the Lord. His testimony tells me that you can live your entire life single without a family and still be content. His testimony tells me personally, God forbid tomorrow I could lose my wife that I've been married to for 11 years. I could lose my three kids. I could lose the 500 articles of clothing in my closet. I could lose my health. I could lose every dollar in my bank account and still have it all in Jesus Christ. That's what his testimony shouts to us this morning. It tells us that we do not need things to be content. The only thing we need is actually a, not a thing. It's a person, and he's eternal, and his name is Jesus Christ. That's good news. That's better than any news you're going to hear when you flip on Fox News or CNN this afternoon. Verse 20 continues. He says, you know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly, and from house to house I have declared to both Jews and Greeks, so there's no partiality with Paul, that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. Verse 22 says, and now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. Now, that term compelled that you see here in verse 22 indicates to us in the Greek that 
the Holy Spirit was granting Paul an extremely strong compulsion to go to the city of Jerusalem. I don't know about you, but I've felt a similar feeling before. I'll tell you a quick story. Back in 2003, I'm at school at Liberty University. I'm working out with a buddy named Brian, and he starts telling me about this girl that I need to meet. And he says, Matt, this girl, I really think she'd be a great match for you. She loves Jesus. She's beautiful. You're both into the same things. For about two months or so, I just stiff-armed his proposal to meet her because people in the past have tried to set me up, and it always ends awkward. So I'm like, no, not really interested, buddy. But he just wouldn't stop. So eventually I give in to his pleading, if you will, and I show up. They're having like a group date night somewhere, about 20 people or so, at the bonfire. And I show up, there's hundreds of people there, I can't find them, so I, I whip out my cell phone. Call them, some of you are wondering why all the details, it's for the ladies, okay, because they love details, right? <laughs> Call my buddy Brian, where are you at? He tells me I make my way through all the people, and I see a girl to my right that is just drop-dead gorgeous. So I start praying in my spirit, Lord, I pray that's Erica, I pray that's Erica, I pray that's Erica. <laughs> And as I'm meeting all the other girls to my left, I'm praying, Lord, I pray that's not Erica. I pray that's not Erica. Not Erica. Come to find out, long story short, the girl on, on the right was indeed Erica. We talked for a few minutes. I go back to my dorm room compelled to pray. I'm not, I'm not, this is not an exaggeration. I know preachers exaggerate all the time, and you wonder if our stories are true or not, especially Rice's. I've, man. And I, I just hit my knees, and I, I, I just couldn't help but pray that the Lord would allow me the opportunity to marry her. I felt compelled. Now, let me pose a hypothetical scenario that's much more consistent with, like, what we're dealing with here in, in Acts 20. Let's say, hypothetically, you wake up tomorrow morning at 1.30 a.m. from a dream or a vision from the Lord. You open up your Bible, have a very intimate time with the Lord, and he's, like, communicating to you. Perhaps not audibly, but you know in your spirit you feel compelled or constrained by the Spirit of God to pack your bags, sell your house, and go to Sudan and serve Jesus alongside of the other Christians living in that area who are being killed right now as I preach because of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you felt constrained in that way or compelled, would you go? Think about that. Do you love Jesus that much? Is he that valuable to you? Or are you just playing some big religious game? Would you go? What if, hypothetically speaking, God the Holy Spirit, which I wouldn't doubt if he's calling some of you to do this, what if he's calling you to stay here in Northwest Cary for the next 40 years and labor with the people of God here and fulfilling her mission? Would you, would you stay? Paul was constrained. He was compelled to go to this city called Jerusalem. If you keep studying the book of Acts, as he's on his way there, one by one, people are telling him, don't go, don't go, don't go. It's going to be uncomfortable. You're going to experience hardship. And he winds up in Jerusalem, being faithful to the mission that God had called him to. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. Let's go back. Verse 24, however, so he knows that the Holy Spirit is warning him that prison and hardships are facing him in the future. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. 
Paul says, I consider my life worth nothing to me. In other words, my will is not more important than your will. In other words, my plan is not more valuable than your plan. At the end of the day, Paul came to the conclusion that life was not about him. I think this is what this particular text, verse 24 specifically, is teaching us. I think this is what the Lord wants us to remember this morning. Life is not about you. It's not about you in the front row. It's not about you over there. It's not about you in the back. It's not about you over here to my left. It's not about you in the sound booth. It's not about you up there in the special seats. It's, it's not about you and it's not about me. And it never has been about you or me. God didn't create you for you. He didn't create you to make all your decisions based on what's best for you. He didn't wire you to glorify yourself or be fulfilled through doing me. Why? Because you are not God. As a matter of fact, it was your sin and my sin that killed God. There is only one God. His name is Jesus Christ. You have been created for him and his purposes. Did you hear that? You have been created for him. This means that you aren't in carry for you. You're in carry for God. This means that you aren't in your neighborhood for you. You are in your neighborhood for him. This means that you don't go to work for you. You go to work for him. This means that you aren't a parent or a spouse ultimately for you. You are a parent or a spouse for him. It's all about Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega, the bright morning star, the worthy one, the glorious one, the resurrected king. It's all about him, and it's not about you. And again, it never has been, and it never will be. Now, that flies in the face of what culture teaches us, right? Culture tells us, oh, do whatever's best for you. Do whatever's convenient for you. If it ain't comfortable, don't do it, because life is all about you. That is a lie from the pit of hell. It's not about you. It's about Christ. And the beautiful thing is, when you understand that and begin living out the implications of that, that is when you will experience true, lasting joy and fulfillment. The reason why some of you are so unfulfilled right now is because your life is about you. And you think, oh, if I can just create more outlets to satisfy myself, then I'll be really satisfied. But it doesn't work. Why? Because you were created for something bigger than yourself. You were created for God. And as the great theologian Augustine says, your heart will be restless until it rests in thee. All about him. Not about you, not about me. That's what this verse, namely verse 24, shouts to me. Paul says, my life is worth nothing to me. That doesn't mean he's going to abuse the temple of the Holy Spirit, his body. That doesn't mean that he's not going to take care of himself. That doesn't mean he's not going to work hard. It just means God's will, his plan, takes precedence over my will and my plan. Let me introduce you to a couple people. First off, Jim Elliott. Some of you know who Jim Elliott was. Elliott studied at Wheaton College, and he was deemed arguably one of the brightest intellects to ever step foot on the campus. And after he graduated, he felt compelled to go to Ecuador to take the gospel to the savages. And he began articulating this vision to close family members and friends and colleagues and things of that nature. And those people didn't really receive his vision well. They actually disagreed with him and said, Jim, you're way too smart for Ecuador. 
You can be known here in the state. You can climb the ladder and make more money and be comfortable here in the state. You just need to stay. Don't go to Ecuador. Against the well wishes of his friends, family members, and colleagues, Elliot actually went to Ecuador. And he stayed there for years. He preached the gospel there. He loved savages there. He came alongside of them. And he was eventually killed by the same savages that God sent him to. Before he died, he had this to say to his critics. He said, consider the call. And if it's God's will, come with us. I dare not stay home when the Indians perish. Soon after his death, historians tell us that hundreds of people followed his example and they went to Ecuador to preach the gospel and eventually die in Ecuador. Man, he took this thing called Christianity pretty seriously. Yeah, and so should we. This is not a game. This is not religion. This is life. Next up, William Carey. Carey was serving as a pastor in the States, and he was in a leadership meeting with a group of other Christian ministry leaders, and he stood up. He had the floor for a couple minutes and began talking about God's calling in his life to take the gospel to India. In the middle of his speech, an old tenured minister had the audacity to stand up, interrupt him, and say, young man, sit down. If it's God's will to convert the heathen in India, he'll do so without your help. Carey wound up going to India, and he saw the Lord do many mighty deeds there. And today, he is known as the father of modern-day missions. Thirdly, Adonine Judson. Judson was called to go to Burma, the epitome of closed countries, meaning if there's any country out there that is hostile to Christianity, it's Burma. He gets married. He looks at his wife and says, honey, we're not going on a honeymoon. We're going to Burma. No Cabo, no Bahamas, no Miami. We're going to go to Burma. Pack your bags. Let's go. So he arrives in Burma. They start having kids. I could be wrong here. I think around kid six, his wife dies as a result of malaria. And then his kids start to die as a result of malaria. Kid one, kid two, kid three, kid four, kid five. Then he, he remarries. And before long, his second wife dies because of malaria. He wound up fathering a total of 13 kids. Seven out of the 13 died. Some would say, bad parent, lousy husband. Why would he expose his family to that type of sickness and pain? I don't think I could disagree more. Faithful servant of Jesus Christ is how I would label him. Was it easy for him to suffer through all that loss? Of course not. I can imagine his heart. It's like ripping out of his chest, right? I mean, as both of his wives die, as seven out of 13 kids die, why would he stay? He stayed because he was compelled. He stayed because he considered his life worth nothing to him. He stayed because he had one goal, to testify to the gospel of grace to those in Burma, and not even malaria, taking the majority of his family could cause him to leave that place. Wow, this is crazy. It sounds like Adonine Judson took this thing called Christianity pretty seriously. Yep, and so should we. As Acts 20 concludes, you see Paul praying one last time with these Ephesian elders. And in the Greek, you study it, it actually says they teared him away. Like they cried, they were, they were just standing perhaps in a pool of tears, if you will, right? As Paul left, he got on the boat and he began to set sail to Jerusalem. 
And I can just see him as an old man, perhaps 70, 75 years old or so, waving goodbye to the elders with tears just flowing down his face. Remember, the Holy Spirit reminded him that suffering and imprisonment is coming. He knows it's not going to be easy. He knows that he's perhaps leaving the only group of people that truly love him at the time to go to a place where he would be beaten and imprisoned. If Paul was around today, and if he had a meeting scheduled, let's say, with Dr. Phil before he met with the Ephesian elders, and he said, Doc, I need some advice. I'm 75 years old. Here's my resume. Shipwrecked, beaten, left for dead, danger, 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 everywhere. People hate me. How do you think I should live the rest of my life? I'm old. I can barely walk. My back hurts all the time. I'm guessing, could be wrong, that Dr. Phil would say, take it easy, buddy. Get away from people. Like, go buy a beach house somewhere and just avoid the people who have been hating you. Not Paul. Paul could not retire from the mission of God. Paul could not retire from investing in people. Why? Because he knew that people were the mission. And until his very last breath, right before Nero took the sword and cut his head off, Paul gave up his life for the sake of people. He never retired from that. As Matt alluded to earlier, I, I grew up in, this, in the Triangle area, so I'm well aware that this is an, it's an affluent area. People have money here, comparatively speaking. Right? And I know many of you are going to, like when you hit 60, 65, 70 years old, you're going to retire with a lot of money in your bank account. And that's, I don't want you to feel ashamed by that. I think God, can, God wants to use the resources that he blesses you with to bless other people and advance his kingdom. But let, let me challenge you in this. While you might retire from your job, never retire from pursuing the mission of God with everything that you have. Never retire from investing in people. Never retire from pursuing Jesus with with absolutely every fiber of your being. Don't just buy a beach house one day and collect shells for the last 15 years of your life while avoiding people at all costs. As Christians, we don't avoid people. We chase after people because God chased after us. I've been a, a lead pastor for about four years or so. I've got a great team of pastors around me. I definitely don't do it all in Columbia. I kind of stay in my lane of preaching and teaching and leadership development. And I have to say, over the past four years, the Lord's taught me so much. He's taught me a lot through my mistakes. I've made a lot of them. And over the years, I think he slowly but surely reveals to me more and more about my role as a preacher and teacher. And one of the things that he has taught me is that when I'm up here standing before hundreds of people, my role is to urge you and plead with you to follow this book. And so I don't think it's out of step for me this morning to literally like bow my knees right here and beg you, won't you take Paul's testimony here in Acts 20 seriously? Won't you do that? Won't you allow his testimony or this verse to become more than just some coffee cup saying or some verse that you put on the back of a t-shirt? Won't you give your life up for the mission of God? That's what you've been created for. And if you really want joy, if you're really serious about your joy and his glory, you'll lay everything else aside and say, I'm going after that until my very last breath. God help us. God help me. Let me pray. Father, we, we take a moment and just silence ourselves and we, we, we sit still before you. 
recognizing that you're God and we're not. You're big. We're small. You're creator. We are created. We recognize our need for you. And Lord, we, we remind ourselves right now of your love and how your love is what truly compels us to count our lives as nothing and give up our plans for your plan. So Lord, whatever it may be, however you're leading the people here at Northwest, I pray that they would have the strength to follow. Perhaps you're leading some of them to really commit to the people here and stop just attending and and just getting fed. While there's nothing wrong with getting fed, Lord, I I pray that, that you would just prick some people's hearts to give back and to start serving and committing to the people here. For those who feel called to stay here in Northwest Cary for a, an indefinite period, Lord, I pray that you give them the strength to do that so that they can persevere with Northwest here in this city and winning people to Jesus. For those who feel called to another place, Lord, give them the courage to step out in faith and say, I'm going to follow. Give me faith to follow. I need an increase of faith, Lord. We know that the disciples prayed for more faith, so we, we pray for that now. We need that. Lord, I thank you for these precious people, and I pray that we will not just be hearers of the word, but Lord, may we be doers. In Jesus' name.